Welcome to the State of the Planet, a United Nations Environment Programme production. I'm Tim Albone, your host. Today, in episode one of the podcast, we talk to Valerie Kapos, who is Head of Programme, Climate Change and Biodiversity Programme at the UN Environment Programme World Conservation Monitoring Centre. Valerie and I discuss the 2020 Adaptation Gap Report, the difference between this report and the Emissions Gap Report, nature-based solutions to managing climate risk, and the benefits of nature-based solutions. So, over to the podcast. So Val, thank you very much for joining me today. I just thought for our first question, you could talk a little bit about the Adaptation Gap Report for 2020 and what it found. Okay, Um, well the Adaptation Gap Report, as I think you know, is a periodic review of the status of adaptation efforts worldwide in an attempt to see how we're doing relative to what we need to do. And this year, the analysis was very much focused in in three different um, areas of adaptation that are all critical to making progress as we adapt to the climate change that we know is coming, however well we do on mitigation. Um, So we looked at planning for adaptation and how, how countries and other stakeholders are managing to integrate the need to adapt into plans and develop really well thought out and thorough adaptation plans that address the full range of climate hazards and the needs of the most vulnerable. Um, We looked at finance available for adaptation because this is actually obviously really quite a key issue that will determine how able we are to make sure that as a society, we adapt to climate change and the most vulnerable are protected from its impacts. And then finally, we looked at, at progress on implementation. As, so particularly the implementation funded by major donors. So we, we know a lot more now than we did when we started about how many adaptation projects are going on, where they're going on, which climate hazards they're addressing, and to some degree, how well or how comprehensively they're specifically targeting vulnerable populations and the most um, important hazards. And then finally, um, this year's Adaptation Gap Report um, took a thematic focus on uh, nature-based solutions for adaptation, which is something that's coming higher and higher up the global agenda. Val, UNEP also puts out another report called the Emissions Gap Report. Could you talk a little bit about how the two differ? Well, the Emissions Gap Report is very much focused on the world's efforts to mitigate climate change. Um, and it's that report which, um, where the language of gap came up about as far as I know, because we have global targets set for reducing emissions um, from combustion of fossil fuels and other sources of greenhouse gases. And what that report does is review our progress in reducing emissions relative to those targets. Um, The adaptation gap report is a little bit different. We don't have such clear global targets for adaptation, but we're still taking the same approach of trying to review progress, see what we've achieved and see what remains. The emissions gap report focuses very much on mitigating climate change, reducing the extent to which it happens, reducing the emissions that are making climate change worse and how, how much progress we're making in doing that. And the adaptation gap report focuses on exactly that, on adapting to climate change, how it is that we're developing and implementing ways to deal with the impacts of climate change that we know are unavoidable. This year's report suggests, and we spoke about it briefly in in the first question, but nature-based solutions and how they could sort of hold the key to bridging the gap. Could you tell us what exactly those are? Well, 
In the context of adaptation, well, nature-based solutions in general are essentially protecting, managing, and restoring um, ecosystems and biodiversity to address societal challenges and have positive impacts for biodiversity. In the context of adaptation, there are lots of very easily understandable illustrations of this. Um, the most common one you hear about is managing, protecting, or restoring mangrove forests, which grow along coasts and afford a level of coastal protection from uh, rising sea levels and the increase in severe weather events that we know are going to have major impacts on coastal communities and cities. Another example I like to use, mostly because I'm getting tired of mangroves, is thinking about, for example, vulnerable infrastructure. Let's think about transport infrastructure for a moment and recognize that in the parts of the world where climate change impacts include increased incidence of severe rainfall, one of the major impacts on transport infrastructure can be the impacts of landslides and subsidence. Mm. And a nature-based solution for that would actually be the management of upslope vegetation to help stabilize those slopes, rather than building loads more concrete retaining walls and other forms of engineered solutions. Often we use both nature-based solutions and engineered solutions together. And that's particularly effective often. So nature-based solutions represent a recognition that um, ecosystems can help us in, in our efforts to deal with the impacts of climate change. And the fact that nature-based solutions often have a lot of additional benefits that help us to address a whole range of societal needs, including, and I want just to make this point, we're increasingly recognizing the links between the climate crisis and what people call sometimes the biodiversity crisis or the loss of biodiversity crisis. And the focus on nature-based solutions is partly a function of recognition of those links, that if we use nature to help us combat climate change, we can also deliver benefits for biodiversity conservation. Okay, interesting. I mean, they sound great, you know, nature-based solutions sound great. So, I mean, is there a holdup and is the world implementing them at large? And if not, why not? Um, I would say that widespread nature-based solutions, use of nature-based solutions is, is isn't happening quite yet. We are seeing increased awareness and increasing use, but it's but we're not seeing widespread enough use or or as widespread as we think they could be useful yet. And there are several reasons for that. A sort of perception thing that people don't necessarily we don't necessarily have the good data on their effectiveness. We we have increasing amounts of data. But the other thing is that parts of the world that are wanting to invest in adaptation are very much geared towards thinking about constructed solutions, engineered solutions, infrastructure. And so it's actually taking a significant amount of awareness raising as well as synthesis and systematization, if I can use that word, of the evidence that we do have on the effectiveness of nature-based solutions to, to bring um, implementers, developers, um, financers, and a whole series of other key stakeholders to a common understanding of what it is that nature-based solutions can do for us. I mean, you spoke a little bit about the benefits. Um, I mean, could you, could you speak a bit more about that, uh, the benefits of nature-based solutions? Absolutely. Um, I, could, I could do that all day. <laughs> um, so we already know how dependent we are on nature. Um, for everything from, from clean water to food to livelihoods. And on the whole, efforts to 
manage nature so that it delivers the kinds of services that help to shield us from the impacts of climate change also deliver a series of additional benefits which fall under those broad categories. I've already mentioned biodiversity conservation, which is absolutely critical to our long-term survival. But locally, um, managing ecosystems in a sustainable way um, is very likely to generate additional benefits, such as steady supplies of clean water, control of erosion. I've already mentioned that, but as a climate impact, but even where it's not a specific climate change impact, erosion control is incredibly important, not just to local communities who need clean water, but for example, to hydroelectric facilities, which yeah. need not to have their sediments damaged by turbines. So steady supplies of water, clean water, um, stabilization of slopes, sequestration of carbon. I mean, that's the other thing that's really important, managing nature for adaptation almost always secures carbon stocks in biomass and usually also secures additional sequestration. You know, it's something the report talks about is it's sort of, I guess, constructed around the three pillars of planning, implementation and funding. And could you could you talk about those in, in sort of relation to nature based Solution. Certainly. Um, so what we're seeing is, if I take them in order for the time being, um, we're seeing an increasing incidence of nature-based solutions in countries' efforts to plan, and this was pure, really a review of national planning documents or national reports on, on their planning processes. But on the whole, um, it's mostly still in quite general terms. So there are declarations of intent to use nature-based solutions, recognition of their importance and their value, and indeed all of these additional benefits. But what we're seeing in the, the sort of larger scale planning documents are mostly, is mostly not much in the way of specifics. The two areas in which we do see specific reference to nature-based solution are in flood management, um, both inland and coastal flood management, mm. and in the management of urban heat. Um, everybody recognizes or we see a, a widespread recognition of the importance of what are sometimes termed green and blue spaces, so natural spaces in the urban environment to help reduce the impacts of increasing heat. Okay. Um, so that's that's planning. So planning is is there, but at the moment it's probably still a bit general and it's not picking up, it's not linking consistently specific nature-based solutions to specific hazards. And we'd hope to see those more concrete plans develop in future. Um, and some, some countries are managing to do that quite well. Um, in respect to finance, it's a sort of interesting perspective because we are seeing some major donors investing a lot in nature-based solutions, but it, or what feels like a lot. But it, and I and I can't cite numbers without looking them up. Um, but it, but it's really a drop in the bucket relative to the overall spend on adaptation, and so it would. The general feeling is again that um, finance could be better directed, better balanced and directed towards nature-based solutions, and that in fact financial institutions, some of them, for example, development banks will actually need to make a conscious effort to become aware of the advantages of nature-based solutions and to make a conscious effort to invest in them. Um, the other side of it is that some investment in nature-based solutions comes from other sources, some sources that people tend to think of as more traditionally conservation sources, but 
that generally isn't an order of magnitude smaller amount of money. So as we're talking about investment and adaptation, we need to see finance directed towards nature-based solutions increase. And then on the implementation side, we see a few key major donors. In, as I've said, this is finance and implementation are very closely linked. Yeah. yeah. Um, really supporting implementation of nature-based solutions. And we see probably the vast majority of um, effort on nature-based solutions going towards addressing, on the one hand, coastal hazards, and on the other hand, flooding. Uh, how well or how comprehensively they're specifically targeting vulnerable populations and the most um, important hazards. And then finally, um, this year's Adaptation Gap Report um, took a thematic focus on uh, nature-based solutions for adaptation, which is something that's coming higher and higher up the global agenda. Um, with also some effort in urban areas. But there's, there's a ways to go to get that spread out both across hazards and geographically so that the world is making the best use it can of what nature can provide for us in this context. Okay. I mean, I think Val, that brings me on to my sort of my, my, my final question. Um, you know, what can we do to make um, nature-based solutions more widespread? Well, as I say, I think a, part of it is about raising awareness and about channeling the experience that we already have. A lot of that experience of implementation of nature-based solutions is happening at project scales and it's being done by people who are absolutely frantic to get on with the work and achieve things and they don't always monitor and publicize the results of what they've done in terms that then feed back into the system that will help to support more such investment. So we need to mobilize that experience. We need to bring on board some audiences, for example, engineers that aren't so used to thinking about nature-based solutions as a first port of call when looking for options. And we need to um, bring on board major financial institutions and governments so that they consistently consider nature-based solutions at the same time that they're considering technical or technological solutions and look at how those two different sorts of solutions compare with each other, how well or how comprehensively they're specifically targeting vulnerable populations and the most um, important hazards. And then finally, um, this year's Adaptation Gap Report um, took a thematic focus on uh, nature-based solutions for adaptation, which is something that's coming higher and higher up the global agenda the, and or can be deployed together for maximum benefit. Well, thank you, Val, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining Valerie and I today. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please check out our next episode and consider subscribing.